Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. Coming to you today from Williamsburg in Brooklyn at the studio of a good friend of mine, uh, an excellent globally renowned photographer, commercial, artistic, and also recently getting into film direction, Simon Harsant. How you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Just back Thank from you. Sydney. Just back from Sydney, yeah, like a week ago, so still kind of dealing with a little bit of jet lag, actually, but there you go. We've known each other, I guess, about seven or eight years. I think I got introduced to you when I first came here. Yeah, I you, think so, yeah. We met up one night in that old bar that's on Mulberry Street, the Australian one that you used to frequent. What was that called? Yeah, Eight Mile Creek. Eight that's Mile right, Creek, yeah, which is no longer. Which is, yeah, no, it was gone, disappeared. And you've recently just opened a restaurant here. Uh, yeah, well, partnered up with a really sort of close old friend of mine and what's so, the name of the restaurant the restaurant is Les Enfants de Bohème yeah very yeah, nice so, English man with a stake in a French restaurant in New York City is quite bizarre wow, that's very cool yeah <laughs> um, you're from yeah. England yeah I was born in a place called Aston Clinton in Buckinghamshire right. um, and I lived there till I was about six and moved to a town just outside of there called Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire you know one of those sort of satellite towns just outside of London so I grew up there from the age of six and then Moved to London when I was, I think, probably about 18, I think. And a very creative 18. father. Yeah, yeah, I grew up. Um, my, my father's a poet and quite a well-renowned poet in England. Yeah, recently, earlier this year, won the T.S. Eliot Prize. What's his name? David Harson. David yeah. Harson. Yeah, what sort of poetry does he write? Uh, dark. <laughs> <laughs> very dark. A bit like my photography, really. Yeah, it was kind of it was a very strange upbringing because I grew up in a very working class neighbourhood, and you know we were very very poor actually. Like when I when the first house I lived in or the house I was actually born in um, was literally a two up two down with an outside bathroom and no hot running water, and we had a tin bath that used to come in from outside, which my mum used to fill with hot water uh, from her sort of twin tub washing machine, and my sister had had first bath and then she top up the water with pots off the stove and and then I'd get in and have second bath and then my parents would have third bath which is pretty much how my brother was born I think <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird it sounds a little bit like a Monty Python sketch as well you know yeah. but yeah it was it was a very and was your I mean, father you writing really about the struggle of working class or was he no, back not, then or was he not really no I mean he's I don't know it's very difficult to describe his poetry I mean it yeah, like I say, it's dark. It's very, very dark. Yeah, I don't know. I Was he a happy guy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, totally. Yeah, yeah. very. Right. Yeah, very. So is it yeah. weird? I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's like any artist. I mean, we're all sort of very completely self-absorbed. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he wasn't. He wasn't the sort of dad that would take you out and play football with you and and you know, sort of kind of do activities like that but you know as, as I've got older he's you know an incredible father to have around and inspiration and yeah. that sort of stuff so and, and was we, he was he successful later in life rather than earlier was he struggling yeah or? no I mean he was I mean he was he's always been very well regarded even since his his first published book which was called A Violent Country and was you know sort of around a group of artists at that time in London or a group of poets around that time in London who I guess uh, were the core of English poetry, all based around a guy called Ian Hamilton. So, so were you, were you, when you were growing up, were you very conscious of his artistic merit and, and, and credentials? Yeah, yeah, I was. And and it's funny because I'm actually, I'm dyslexic, so, which I didn't find out until a lot, lot later in life. Right. 
you know, you feel quite intimidated, I guess, and like, and given that he's a writer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I just think that you know, the level of conversation is very different to the sort of type of conversation you, know, you would have with a normal father, I guess. So, was your was your mother creative? Yeah, she is. I mean, she's very, very well read, but you know, she became the housewife really, yeah, um, and then later on went on to work with as a teacher's assistant with you know down syndrome children and stuff like that very much a caring the saint yeah she yeah how young were you when you worked out you were going to go down a similar route probably about 11 i used to it's funny because when when we moved to aylesbury my that front room was sort of became virtually my dad's study and the whole room was just lined with books so i used to my the way i'd spend time with my father is i'd go and sit in his study with him while he was typing right. or he was writing so he'd be writing poems and I was allowed to be in the room but I wasn't allowed to talk to him <laughs> that's very <laughs> yeah it was kind of, of I can see that like a very English children shall be seen and not heard yeah I mean it, it, kind of, it kind of was but kind of wasn't I mean it was also it was just like you know you can be in the room with me but you know I'm, you have to understand I'm working yes. and I need to concentrate yes. yeah. and the funny thing is that you know I would think that when he stopped typing you could talk that to was him. when I could talk to him <laughs> but obviously that's when he's composing his thoughts yeah. so. and so I used to sort of kind of sit in the room and we had and we had so many books on sort of Rembrandt Gauguin and I, th- I think it was then I got the ability to be in the presence of someone else without having to talk too much. It's weird. I have that with my son as well. You know, sometimes we'll just be able to be in the same room and not talk to each other, but just be perfectly comfortable yeah. with just the fact that you've, there's a warm body in the room. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was, I mean, basically what happened was I was, um, it was like one of those sort of horrible rainy days and I was off school. You know, I was bored out of my mind and, and, you know, Dad was like, you know, go read a book or go do a painting or something. So so I went upstairs and I did this painting and the painting was of the Titanic hitting an iceberg. And I don't know why I chose to paint that. Mm. I think maybe we were studying at school or something. And, you know, I took it down to and showed my father. And, you know, it was one of those moments where, you know, as children, you're constantly seeking approval of your parents yeah. and stuff. And, you know, or I was anyway with my father. And, you know, he loved it, and he was like, wow, this is great. You know, my son's going to be an artist. Brilliant. <laughs> so, and so he kind of whisked me off to the to the paint store and brought me what paints he could afford and then introduced me to an artist who lived around the corner who eventually taught me how to stretch canvases and do all that sort wow. of stuff. And I started painting, so that was probably sort of kind of 11 years yeah. old. And then photography was an option at school. You know, you get to, I think mm. it's like 13 or whatever you get to, you have to select your subjects that... You're going to take your GSEs or CSEs mm. or whatever they were called. I can't even remember now. O-levels um, and A-levels. O-levels and yeah. A-levels, yeah, that's right. The reason I actually took it was because all my mates were taking photography and I just right. thought, yeah, this is the lesson. It's like it's one of those, this sounds easy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I don't have to work too hard. And, you know, and also, like, I mean, like I say, I, mean, I went through the whole of my school. I went to a sort of really crappy, comp- comprehensive school in Aylesbury where you know teachers really just turned up for work they, they, they weren't they really care. interested and you know kids it was just about it was almost like prison it was about doing yeah. any time was so, it a rough school um, not really I mean I mean rough in the sense that well yeah I guess we there used to be sort of organised fights between the other schools <laughs> in the area so. yeah, yeah it, wasn't, rough, it yeah. wasn't necessarily rough but it was just I don't know. Well, were you always getting like, A's in art and stuff like that? Like, was that your... Oh, I never got an A in anything. Right. Actually, okay. it's funny. I was just in London. My mum's, my mum's 
as we was thinking about selling a house, she's, we all, I grew up in, but she's not anymore. But so she had this massive clear out, and she gave me this, my old school report. She kept all my school reports, Brilliant. and they were basically like, you know, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> He's, you know, he needs to. I think there's a great line from one which is. You know, Simon thinks that he doesn't need the help of the teachers. I think he's, he has to realise that he's wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he'll never come to anything. You know, it was really, like, really, really shitty school reports. I mean, basically, I think I was, I was just a bit destructive in classrooms. And, you know, had I known what I know now, I probably would have changed that. But. What did you do when you left then? Well, when I left school, actually, I didn't really know what I was going to do. But I knew that, I mean, I love photography. I was and drama and I used to do all the lighting for the school plays and yeah. stuff like that and you know art obviously and, and the reason why I took the other one of the other reasons why I took photography as an option is because I actually thought it would be really good to take pictures and then paint from pictures because mm-hmm. you know at the time I was you know how I was honing my skills as a painter was I'd basically sort of kind of you know look through books like Rembrandt and Van Gogh and, and but and then I'd try and replicate that you yeah know, I, mean, I was 12-year-old kid, 13-year-old kid, so I thought photography would be a really good idea in the sense that I could photograph something and then paint from that photograph because yeah. I really needed to take time to process that. And then I, and then really once I discovered photography, it was like one of those light bulb moments really. I mean, I just loved it so much and, you know, I used to build a dark room in my bedroom so I'd pick up blankets from the bed <laughs> over the window and I'd convert my bedroom into a dark room. Which was a great way to sneak girls in as well when I was younger. <laughs> Don't come in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My mum would never ever open the door if she thought yeah. I was printing. You know, so I'd have girlfriends drop over and see me. But yeah, so not a lot of printing got done. But yeah, and so then yeah, so then anyway, after school, I really didn't know what I was going to do. But Dad was, you know, he, you know, he sort of said, you know, do you want to do photography? And I'd never really even considered the fact that you could. I was, you could do it. I was actually keen to do what all my mates did, which was go work in the local hearing aid factory and buy myself a motorbike. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sort of working out from there. I, Is the hearing aid factory still there? No, I don't know. I don't think so. No, <laughs> no, probably not. So, yeah, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't even know that that was, a, that was a viable option for me. But at the time, Dad was living in London. Him and my mother had separated. Um, and he knew a woman who worked at an advertising agency and she, he introduced me to a photographer called Andrew Moran, phenomenal photographer. And so I went and did a little bit of work experience with him and then that, I sort of kind of thought, yeah, maybe this is an option. So I applied to Watford College and I went to Watford College and did a city and guilds in photography there. So, so yeah, so, were you like, oh, look at the fancy pants going to college? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, it was tough though because I was living in Aylesbury, and so I'd have to get the bus to Watford every day. That was like two hours there, two hours back every day on the bus. Right. Yeah. It was, Did you that, love it though? Like, was it good? Yeah. Again, I don't think I, I. I'm not really good with being told what to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it was probably just the wrong course for me, to be honest. It was a very technical course. It was a city and guilds course. I think, in hindsight, I probably would have been better with a, a you know, more arts-based course. And, mm. You know, I mean, was I it think a one-year course. It was a two-year course, and I left halfway through my second year. I just sort of kind of got to a stage where actually I met a, a photographer. Uh, well, Andrew, the guy that I'd met previously, I'd started working with him and the guy that he was sharing a studio with offered me a full-time job. Ah, so okay. I went and saw my tutors and said, you know, I've got a job 
doing what I, I want to do once I leave college anyway. So, you know, I may as well just do, do that. And that and was an apprenticeship probably, running around? Yeah, it was just being an assistant, you yeah. know, dog's body sweeping the mm. floor. Okay, so now you have a job, and then how do you break out? Because I've always wondered this when you when I when I do shoots or when I'm on on set. It's like you, you see all these people who are helping. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder how they get to become. I mean, it's kind of funny, really. Like everything. I mean, I guess everything happens for a reason. But the reality for me was that I never actually made that decision. It just kind of was something that occurred. What happened was I assisted in London for a few years, and some fantastic photographers and brilliant mentors. I don't know if anyone has a full-time assistant anymore, but, you know, at the time, full-time assisting was just the way it was, and you got paid peanuts, and, mm. you know, I think I was on, like, 50 quid a week, and my rent was 25, and, yeah. you know, my train pass was 10, and, yeah. you know, the, the rest of it was beer money, you know? Yeah. And then when I needed to build, play the bills, I'd ring Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Raise another ball, Dad. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what, what actually happened was I, I, I just kind of got a bit fed up with England, and... I decided to go on a working holiday to Australia and I, again like it was just one of those things it was just a women of prayer and, and the way that I tend to make things happen is I just tell people I'm going to do it so you have to you do have it because yeah. <laughs> I actually look like an idiot so I was like well, I'm going to Australia and I was like I didn't have and so yeah I just got a working holiday visa for Australia and I got to Australia and I was just really I was just going to assist and just I kind of wanted to see a bit of the country and I met this photographer, a guy called Billy Wrench, who's an expat English photographer, lovely guy, and I showed him my portfolio. He just looked at it and he said, you know, he said, mate, he said, you know, you should just find a shared studio and start shooting. Yeah. You know, I didn't have any gear with me. I mean, I just had, you know, I think it was like a Pentax and a Canon, and that was pretty much it. Just, I needed to find a scenario where I could share a studio and use the gear, and so I got into the shared studio with this other photographer who sort of kind of had other people working out and they did a percentage deal where they took a certain amount of your fee for being able to work out the studio. You know, that was really good actually because, you know, he introduced me to a lot of people out there and, you know, there was a lot of expat art directors at the time. And I I guess in a a way as well, I was just very lucky. I I was 20, I guess I was 21, nearly 22. You know, because I come from England, it wasn't... You know, like it is now, it's like you know, trends just sweep the world straight away. But you know, I think English photography months was, for stuff to get out. Yeah, there, you know? yeah, there was a very different scene going on in London. It was you know a lot of soft focus, and which I'm very good at getting things out of focus. <laughs> so <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just made it my my uh, my look. And I, I mean, I did get to a stage after the first six months. I remember I I was living at the studio. I was kind of sneaking back. I didn't have any money. I took kind of run out of money. I'd done a few jobs, but I was waiting for, you know, advertising you was waiting for the money yeah. to come in, you know. It's 90 60 days. 90 days. It was ridiculous. And I remember one weekend I had $5 to my name. That was it. Wow. And the studio was up in St. Leonard's. Where the, the time was, you know, there was yeah. nothing around there on the weekend. Yeah. And I went down and I bought enough food to make two stir fries. So I thought that would get me through the weekend and... You know, someone will be in on the weekend on Monday, and I can borrow a tenner off them. Do you sleep in the studio? Yeah, so I yeah sleep back in and sleep at the studio because I had nowhere to go. I remember I burnt the first lot of stir fry. I was like, "Are you kidding?" But there was a slab of beer in the fridge, right? So I was just like, "There's only one thing for it, isn't it? Is get horrendously drunk." So, so I got smashed, and I I called my father, and I was just, you know, I said, "Oh, look, you know, I think I'm going to come back and." I was really low actually I was quite lonely at the time as well and I was like 
was kind of like, what the fuck have I mm. done? You know, I've left my life in England and you know, mm. in this strange country. And, and he just basically sort of said, look, you know, just hang in, you know, just see how you go. And, and then the next week, I got this huge job coming in for the launch of the four-wheel steering Honda Prelude. Um, this would have been a big pair, yeah? Yeah. I mean, for me at the time, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it was more money than I'd seen since ever, really. Yeah. And yeah, and that was really sort of kind of what turned everything around for me. And then I, I extended my visa for another six months and stayed till the, the December of that year and went back to England. A photographer? Like, uh, yeah, 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 pretty much. And that was the that was the 88, so that was the bicentenary year for mm. Australia. And I got back and I was staying at my dad's apartment and... Was he proud of you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, he's. I mean, you know, you know, kids. I mean, it's like you know. I say to my son, "You could be a serial killer, and I could still never stop loving you." Yeah, I'd be disappointed. <laughs> you don't have to kill too many. Yeah, exactly. You don't have the ability not to love your children. I don't think. Well, I, don't know, I guess some people do, but so yeah, I got back there, and you know, I was watching all this stuff. Like Alan Wicker was doing a special on, mm. you know, Australia, and I'd sit there in my dad's apartment, looking out the window with the rain and the low cloud cover and <laughs> watching all these pictures of Sydney and I just went, you know what, I'm going to apply for residency and and uh, got that pretty quickly and so by March of 88 I was back there as a full-time permanent resident and never really looked back, that's the last time, last time I lived in England and then in 1988, oh no, hang on, 1989 I branched out and went into my own studio scenario when yeah. did you start bringing the idea of your artistic photography back into into? Because as I, when I would have known you, I would have thought of you much more as a sort of an artistic photographer. Yeah, I was always testing and I was always shooting sort of personal work. But for me, I always sort of came from the premise that the work had to be beautiful, regardless of whether it was commercial work or personal work or whatever. You know, and that, I guess that's what I became known for as well. It was beautifully crafted work and I and it was more actually a, tran, a transition from being a still life photographer to being a people photographer really mm. I think that you know it was, it was funny because I was in this you know one of the most beautiful cities in the world but stuck in a studio from you know sort of 10 o'clock in the morning till yeah. midnight yeah. most nights when it was sweltering hot outside and, and beautiful to photograph in Sydney isn't yeah, it yeah and you know but my whole life was in my studio yeah. <laughs> it was kind of yeah. like, you know these indoors da- yeah indoors yeah. these darkened rooms and I, I guess so. It was kind of really then that that I started thinking that I had to do stuff that was more project based, or that was more a series of photographs than just a singular, you know, shot or a singular idea. Did you? Uh, what, what, what predicated the move out of Sydney? I felt like it. Well, I mean, I pretty much got to the the top of the pile I mean, without being arrogant but I mean I just pretty much shot for every major agency and most you know won heaps of international awards and you know I was the sort of youngest photographer ever to work win a Cannes Grand Prix at the age of 24 or 5 or whatever what was it was that and that was for the Cadu show oh, Cad, Paul yeah, Bennell yeah, Paul yeah exactly Bennell, yeah, yeah. yeah Paul Bennell. Um, and you know so I, I kind of felt I'd just gone as far as I could go and I was on a shoot in LA and I flew to New York. Actually, the producer introduced me to a guy who became my first agent and who I've just gone back to, a guy called Michael Ash, mm. um, who I absolutely adore. He's such a fantastic agent. 
and Michael had seen a lot of my work in Archive magazine and stuff and he was like I want to represent you and, you know and it just there were a lot of different things going on in my life at that time and it just made sense really just to, to was it an ambition thing as well to crack America? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there was probably a bit of ego there as well. Right. But I mean, it was also, I mean, I, I kind of just felt that being in Sydney, uh, that there was just nowhere left for me to go. How many years did you do there? Eleven. Eleven. Yeah. Okay. And then was um, it when you came out to come over here, did you have to kind of prove yourself all over again? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was it was funny because I sort of came out here. I was like, hey, you know. <laughs> I've won a DNOD, I've won Cannes, I've done, you know, I've got like one shows and London Internationals and things like that. They look at you go, what? It's yeah. like, you know, I mean, basically everything you've done prior to coming to New York, it's just forget about it. So I think that <clears throat> that was when, I mean, it was, I mean, one of the also, also another one of the reasons was that, you know, I was working so much in Sydney, like to make ends meet, and you know, there, there becomes a level in a company where the amount of staff that you have negates the profit you make, and you, yes. you know, there's a, a you know, there's ratio a, that yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, I just I was so busy that the amount of staff I had to put on, you know, it was basically it was I would have been better off doing less work and having less staff. And, mm. How many staff you, did you have at the top of your? Ah, in Sydney, three full timers and three freelancers. Right. Just for me, I seriously. I mean, I'd be working fourteen hour days, seven days a week, and and a lot of it was just churn and burn stuff. A lot of it was just you know, and, you know. Did you ever get sick of it? Yeah, I think. Well, that's that's really what happened. Really? I just got sick of doing that, and I knew that I that I was getting a to machine. a stage where I was risking quality, right. and it became about quantity, and it wasn't something I wanted to do. And also at the time. I, I knew that if I was doing half the work in America, I'd probably be earning twice the amount of money. Mm. So, yeah, I just kind of felt it was really time to make a move, and it wasn't the most ideal time to make a move because my son had just been born, so it meant, you know, my, my marriage had broken up. So it meant, you know, sort of leaving him and spending time in, in America, and, you know, but I always was like, okay, well, my commitment to that is I'll be back in Sydney for every school holiday. So mm-hmm. that, was, that was the deal. So, so I moved over... To New York in ninety ninety seven, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, it was tough. It was yeah, yeah it was <laughs> like I, I landed and expected to work straight away. And I'd already done a couple of jobs. Michael had already got a couple of jobs that I'd flown over for, but I had a lot of time on my hands. So did you close your shop in Sydney? Yeah, shut everything down. And so you're suddenly back on your own. Yeah. Did, did you have to? find a studio or what yeah well actually I lived in the Chelsea Hotel when I first moved Did you? out here yeah so I'd spent three months there which was did you take any that was pictures of the inmates yeah I've, I've got some I've got some snaps from around that time yeah that was an interesting experience to say the least and I, yeah I mean I had so much time on my hands that I'd pack a camera bag and I'd you know leave the apartment with the camera on my shoulder and but I wouldn't get the camera bag out I'd just walk around and I was and I, I realised that I'd just forgotten how to take pictures for myself because I didn't have a brief. I was so used to working to a brief that I just didn't have an idea in my head, you know. And so I started briefing myself and I worked on... So the artist had got disappeared and the you become like a machine. Yeah, pretty much, into, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't realise... Was it scary for how, you? Yeah, it was, very. Yeah, very. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't realise the extent of what... Of, of how much I'd sort of kick the artist out of me by just consuming myself with 
commercial work really which yeah which was really yeah big eye opener mm. like a really big eye opener and then how did you get so you were briefing giving yourself little projects did it just start to come back naturally or yeah just yeah I mean one thing leads to another I mean I, th- I, th- I think that's the thing I mean even now it's, it's some of the stuff you've done just to maybe segue I, I mean I love the the football yeah, the beautiful game. Well, beautiful game. I mean, it's funny. Tell me how that would have started. So basically, that, t- tell me what it is. I knew I always wanted to do a football-related project. I wanted to combine my, my sort of kind of two loves, which are, you know, photography and, and football. I used to go and watch my son train. So every school holiday, I'd go back, and my son played football from, a, from the age of five. And there were these old broken goalposts which were sitting next to this sort of kind of stack of pine trees or this sort of mini pine forest. And I took this picture and I, I looked at it at the time and I was just thought, like, yeah, it's fantastic, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And then, so then I had I had this sort of kind of idea about, you know, lone goalposts in the middle of fields and just, you know, what the game really is, you know. Right. I mean, you know, what football's become in the Premier League and, you know, what people see on TV is not necessarily no. what, the roots of football is, you know, and a lot of the professional grounds were built for communities, you mm. know, and the communities are very much part of the club, and the clubs are very much part of the community. Mm. You know, some of the grounds are built in very sort centre of, of town, yeah, like you know, terraced Belton areas. Lumber I mean, you, yeah, exactly, like, like Anfield or yeah. you know, um, Goodison, yeah. Goodison Park. You know, for me, I mean, I'm an atheist, so you know, for me, it's my religion. Bill Shankly, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So. It's almost sort of kind of like, you know, when a Christian sees a cross, it's like yeah. when I see a goalpost yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or a stadium. And then I loved the idea of that the, these stadiums are just sort of kind of redundant during the week, you know, I mean, unless you've got a Champions League game or a midweek game. But they're these buildings which just sort of kind of come alive on, ma- on match day. And there's Brief. something that's just so special about match yeah. day. You know, I yeah. remember, you know, like being going to football with my mates was really the first time I felt part of something you know it was mm. just you know there's, yeah, yeah, there's an identity that, that you have and there's very much a growing experience it's funny actually because I've just done a one of the projects I'm finishing now is is called GBH which is um, uh, Great Britain's Hooligans oh, yeah. um, so I photographed some of the ex sort of kind of top guys from, where are they now for, yeah pretty much yeah. Well, how, how they've sort of Turn their life around really yeah. more than anything. It's you were saying to me quite a lot of them have, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's amazing because it was pretty yeah. savage back then. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah in the eighties, yeah. yeah, it was full on. So. And the other thing about these goalposts, so they're basically a whole series of goalposts. Well, posts, they're right? just—they're not sort of goalposts. I mean, basically, what I do now is like anywhere I go in the world, I just find a football ground to go and photograph it, and it's all the way through from grass, grassroots to the premium stadiums, you know, like yeah. Anfield and Old Trafford and, you know, and I photograph, actually I photographed Stamford Bridge from West Brompton Cemetery and that was two days after we won the Champions League. You know, that had been a trophy that we'd been chasing for so mm. long and, you know, we'd laid a lot of ghosts to rest that night yeah. so I photographed it from West Brompton Cemetery. So that's obviously my favourite picture. <laughs> you also did a lovely one of, uh, what was it, Daily Mount in Dublin? Daly Mount, yeah, I love Daly Mount. It's funny, actually, I was there. Daly Mount is a really old, like what we were talking about, a really old classic stadium falling apart now in the middle of Dublin. It used yeah. to, it used to host the occasional Irish soccer match, but a really intimate little proper old yeah. down a laneway kind of. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, with the Bohemians, right? Mm. Yeah. 
But one of the pictures I have of Daly Mount is there's a church in the background yeah. as well. One of the things that I've I've realised a lot of the grounds in England and Scotland there's always a church somewhere. Yeah, you go and pray. And for it's, the there's, there's there's this beautiful contrast between you know the church, the two and, religions. Yeah, exactly. So you were in Ireland that time to for for one of sort of a bit of a sad and poignant but beautifully rendered. You were the last guy to photograph Seamus Heaney, the very famous Irish yeah, poet. Yeah. That was an amazing experience. Actually, it's funny because I'd met. I met Seamus at the Griffith Poetry Prize. Were he and your father in touch? Yeah, well, he was, yeah, he, like him and my, my father and Seamus knew each other, um, right. you know, from sort of kind of around the traps, obviously both being poets and what have you. And Seamus was getting the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Griffith Poetry Prize, and my father actually won the International Prize. So they do three prizes. They do the International Poetry Prize, mm. they do a Canadian Prize, and then they do a Lifetime Achievement Award, and Seamus won that. And I, I got introduced to him. I flew up to, to Toronto just to be with my father because my, my dad, for a while, we used to get nominated for every single award but never win anything. Right. I was kind of like, and I, I just figured, you know, fuck, if he doesn't win this one, i just got to be there for him just so I could take him out and get him drunk. Yes. <laughs> Here we go again. Yeah, but anyway, he won it, which was fantastic. And I met Seamus, and... And Seamus and I just got on really well. He's such a gentleman, you know, such a gentleman. Like in the in all senses of the word, it really is. Just was a beautiful man. During it, I said to him, I, I said, "Look, you know, if I get myself to Dublin, I said, you know, will you sit for me? Will you do?" Like a, I don't know why, but I just sort of kind of felt it was a really important portrait for me. I mean, I think, knowing how much my father admired him, mm-hmm. and you know, probably the greatest poet of his generation, really. Yes. And so anyway, we, we had a bit of back and forth on email with his wife, Murray, trying to organise a date, and it kept falling through. And, and I was in Australia on a, on a shoot, and this was just before Easter, and, and I teed up to go to England for Easter, and then I was going to hop over to, to um, Dublin to photograph Shavers just before Easter. Then I had this job come in, and it would would have kept me in Australia and meant I would have had to cancel again. And I'd, I'd already cancelled once, Seamus had cancelled once, and, and I was just like, I can't, like, I can't cancel this again. Something just said, oh, yeah. you've got to go do this now. So crazy as it was, you know, I flew all the way to England, spent a day in England, jumped on a plane, went to Dublin, met up with Seamus and, and just had a wonderful, wonderful sort of kind of four hours with him at his house shooting his portrait and he captured a couple of cheeky whiskies as well he captured a a sadness in him that uh, was it's quite it's quite haunting actually yeah you you can see your work on simonharson.com yeah simonharson.com I think that that, those photographs of Seamus Heaney are on there and they're worth a they're worth a look but no one, I mean, no one knew that, you know, literally sort of kind of three months later he passed away, unfortunately. Yeah. And it was, I sent him copies of the prints, I think in the May, and I'd been away on location. I got back to New York and there was a letter waiting for me. And I have, the, I have the, this, only three things I have in my safe at home, which is my passport, my birth certificate, and this letter from Seamus Heaney really? that he hand wrote me just telling me how beautiful he thought the photographs yeah. were and you know how much he admired the process and and how he knew how difficult it was for every, for all the stars to align and uh, it's yeah it's yeah, it's it's, I mean without doubt it's it's my most 
treasured um, possession in the, in the in in you know much more over any of the awards that mm. I've ever won for photography. Just you know having yeah, and I think you know it's, it's, you've, you really captured. I, it was one of the first times that I'd seen. I know a little bit about him. Fancy myself as a bit of a bad poet, but you know it's like when you see him, you kind of go, "Wow, that really." It's, it's haunting yeah. so um, the other one I want to talk about was the icebergs that, how did that yeah. come about well the icebergs I mean as I, as I was saying earlier that, I mean the icebergs really was born out of the up, my upbringing yeah. so it was you still have your Titanic picture no, no, no I wish I did I wish I did I really wish I did actually I got cut it's funny she got like I said earlier I went back and mum had a big clear out and there's a couple of paintings there from when I was a you know, 12 year old and I was looking at him going oh my God, I'm so glad I found photography. <laughs> <laughs> so you went and photographed. How many icebergs? Did you, well, you did a portrait of icebergs. Well, basically. what happened? What happened I'm was at one I was now, on your wall. yeah. What, what happened was I was in Thailand on a shoot and and I was shooting for Mercedes, the game car. So you know, we finished the shoot. We'd been out out in the field all day, and I got back to the hotel and you know, ran myself a bath and. You know, the bath was the size of my apartment in yeah. New York. You yeah. know. So I'm sort of kind of sitting in this bath, going, you know, with a beer and room service, and just yeah, and yeah, just so going, totally. how the fuck did I get here? You know, mm. you know this kid from Aylesbury with nothing and Tim Bath and all that sort of stuff. And you know, at the time, I was sort of kind of really keen to do something, a personal project, but like a a, a personal project deeply rooted in. One of the things that really uh, intrigues me, and I guess shows up in a lot of my work, is is the paths that we choose and the decisions that we make, and where that then leads us. Mm. And I was, you know, I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, how do I get here? And it was kind of like, really, it just sort of kind of boiled down to, you know, everything changed when I did that picture of the Titanic, like the the painting. When I was twelve, that's what led me to painting, and then led me to photography, and mm. you know, so it was the catalyst to change a life, if you like. So I started doing research on the Titanic and I thought that that might be, you know, given it was built in Belfast, launched from uh, England to New York, I thought that that might be the story. So it might be interesting to explore the Titanic because that was about a journey and the painting and stuff like that. Something draws you to it. Yeah, I mean, I just, it's, it's just, and it's kind of one of those sort of really mysterious stories, you know, and I think that you found out that there was this place called Iceberg Alley, which mm. immediately uh, uh, sort of kind of appealed to my bizarre sense of humour. I, I had this vision of like, icebergs standing in an alley. Yeah, 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 flick yeah, yeah, flick knives <laughs> and clubbing <laughs> ships in the night. You know. So that was sort of kind of one thing that really drew me to that. But also, I think one of the biggest thing was the fact that the iceberg would have, had, would have broken off of the, the glacier in Uliasat and travelled all the way down, it would have had broken off the glacier a year before the Titanic had even been finished being built. Yeah. And so, you know, there was this, this iceberg that was always Destined. on this course. There was this destiny involved yeah. and stuff. And then just the, you know, the fact that icebergs are, are, you know, born and then they snap off the glacier and, you know, get battened, and beaten and then get absorbed back into the water. It's this, this yeah. kind of life cycle, if you like, yeah. with, with the water. Um, that really intrigued me and so that's when I just went okay well the, the icebergs are the metaphor for my own journey and they're the metaphor for you were rounding a, a circle yeah I mean it's, it's that sort of you know every weather storm every weather pattern every current that happened 
mm. for that iceberg, put that on a collision yeah, course. Yeah. So there were daily changes that, which I love that. I love that. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's butterfly effect. So I went to I went to New Finland first, and I photographed off the coast of St John's, which is really where the icebergs dissipate, and yeah. that's where they sort of kind of end up. And so I went there, and I spent ten days on the water there, photographing icebergs there. And I remember giggling like a child when I saw my first iceberg. It was yeah. just, it was, it was sort of kind of real. I had a very strong vision about how I wanted to present these icebergs. I wanted to present them in a, which is one of the reasons why it's called Mel Portrait of an Iceberg, in a in a way that they were almost statuesque. They were almost yeah. like portraits. So I spent a lot of time looking at uh, Mark Rothko paintings before I went out and did the project and just his use of colour and division of block colours and just how they relate. So I pretty much had a very stringent point of view of how I was mm. going to photograph these. It would be sea, iceberg, sky. That was always a very shining You capture a menace about them. They're yeah. Almost, they're almost personified as like, when you think about that iceberg alley, it's like, I don't want to meet that iceberg. Yeah, dark exactly, alley. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I mean, the one you're looking at now is, is, the one, is one of the ones shot in the mist. And, it, you know, I mean, there's just... I got gifted so many shots on this yeah. and you know really like you know great photography is just about turning up um, and this this was a, f- a really foggy day and we woke up and the guy I stayed at this dive lodge and we'd hook up this trailer a rib boat to this this trailer um, Zodiac you know um, mm. we'd hook it up to his trailer and we'd go and find icebergs and then drop the boat in the water and go off and we woke up this morning it was really foggy and he says oh, I guess you don't want to go out today I was like no I definitely want to today's go out today. Day. Today's the day. Yeah. It's like you know, last thing I want is sunny weather. I don't do. I'm, you know, I'm dark. Yeah. I don't. I don't do sunny weather very well. That's a good way to <clears throat> maybe conclude. Just coming full circle with the icebergs. The, yeah. the one thing I would ask though is, well, what would you say to a kid like you in Aylesbury or somewhere else in the world who's trying to think about maybe doing a career? And what, what have you learned? What are your pearls? Of wisdom? You know. You know what? I mean, I just just be a sponge. Like really, just be sponge, just absorb some of stuff. You know, don't use it to to plagiarize. But I mean, it's the same thing as what I say to my son. It's like, you know, if you feed your body full of hamburgers, you're going to get fat and lazy, right? Yeah. It's like if you, you know, it's, it's the same with your mind. Like if you if you sit down and just watch junk on TV or just fuel your brain with stuff that 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 drives a passion and that inspires you and the, and and you know, things will find you once you do that. One thing always leads to another. You know, you discover one painter. And you know, I, I love painting. I mean, I still I use still use painting as a lot of inspiration, much more so than photography. You I mean, still I paint to people? Uh, yeah, every now and again. Right. But yeah, no one will ever see that. <laughs> <laughs> That's purely just for me. And yeah, I don't. I actually would like to do it a lot more, but it's tough finding time to do all I have to do anyway at the moment. Without. Listen, thanks a lot for the My chat. Pleasure, it was man. really good. Yeah, um, yeah cool. Another Anytime. pint with Shawnee B. Ends this time with Simon Harson. We might actually go for a real pint now in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wish you all the best in uh, whatever the next endeavours are. Thanks, man. Your guy really inspires me. So thanks for coming. Thank you. Cheers. Pleasure.